0: you physically anyway i'm
1: in los angeles oh okay so we're recording now Hi. That's a place hi. i've
0: never been never been to the southern california i've been to san francisco area in northern california a few times
1: but... just imagine a sunny place that is just chock full of people that you can never get away from humanity in los angeles
0: <laughs> yeah Endless freeways and houses. Endless
1: freeway, exactly. So you can't get away from them in your house, on the freeway, restaurant. You line up for everything. It's almost like a communist system, but it's, you know, you have to line up for everything. Gas, food. Oh, my. Yeah, so. uh, Anyway. I think I'll never go there. You know, it's it's good to visit, but uh, it's good to leave as well. So, anyway. 321. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. His name is David Martin. He comes to us from D.C. He has just published a book. The title of the book is The Assassination of James Forrestal, and it was published May twenty-first, 2019. And David is going to talk to us in detail about his position regarding the demise of the first uh, head of the Department of Defense right after World War II. Uh, DC Dave is his website dcdave.com i was a reader of david martin when i was in dc back in the 90s and it was basically him that i read a lot of and mike rivero and justin ramondo of antiwar.com who recently passed away so that was a tragic loss but uh so it's an honor for me to talk with david and mr martin are you there i'm here all right well thanks for agreeing to Great. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who don't know you or your name, can you talk a little bit about your background and your journalistic interests and how you became interested in this particular subject?
0: Uh, well, I just sort of eased into it, I guess. Uh, I, I guess it goes back up. I, I have a Ph.D. in economics from the University of North Carolina in 1976 when I finally completed my dissertation in and then it was just a matter of making a living, you know. I taught in college for six years and then went off on a big adventure and uh, uh, worked for the research office of the Economic Development Administration in Puerto Rico for four years and then came up to Washington with the Puerto Rico uh, governor's office. Uh, I had three kids and it's I really didn't want them to grow up as uh, not knowing who they were <laughs> being puerto Ricans, and my wife was pretty restless too and anyway so we we came to the Washington area but uh, my background in, I guess conspiracy stuff I'd always sort of followed the um uh, the Kennedy assassination case just doesn't as a, as a public spirited person, but that's about the extent of it and and then um. Uh, The the Oliver Stone movie came out, and uh, at that point, I really got really political, because uh, what I saw in the Stone movie was sort of, as they say in academia, kind of a collection of the, the literature on the subject that I had read. No big, huge revelations to me in it, but the absolute... The, the frenzy, the negative frenzy of the news media over oh, it—that really, that was a big eye opener to me at that point. <laughs> you know, well, right. the, the news media is—they're—they're they're the problem. I, I saw right there the big problem. And right on the heels of—I wrote a long poem called *Assassins*. It was sort of a therapeutic thing to, to get it out. You know, and my, my writing of verse comes from just just an emotional outlet. I've got a i have got a feel a strong emotion and I've got to say it somehow. It went to the drawer because there really wasn't any good outlet for for something like that. But then about that time here, you know, I'm living in Washington, and the, the, the Vince Foster case occurs. Well. Vince Foster was two years behind me at Davidson College in North Carolina. I, 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 that's where I went undergraduate, Graduated in '65. Um, I didn't know him, but he—he he was the, we were about the same height, so we matched up against each other in intramural basketball. But I didn't pay much attention to people in classes below me, so I really I, I didn't. I didn't have any image of the guy. Except I, I knew that he was. Uh, I read that he, he was. Uh, I was reminded by reading that he had. He'd been the president of Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, and I was one of the few non-fraternity people there. So I played for the independents, and uh, um, so I, for, I had an image of the guy. as this typical party boy. That was about what he was at Davidson. Um, but, but still, as a fellow Davidson student, I felt a certain fellow feeling, and, and, and nothing about this this story added up. <laughs> you know, and so right. I got very much interested in the Foster case. And in reading about the Foster case, repeatedly I saw his death being described as uh, the highest-level government official to commit suicide, I put it in quotes. Since uh, Secretary of Defense James Forrestal, well, you know, from what I'm learning about the Foster case, uh, I I, I was pretty well persuaded that he didn't commit suicide. So that made me more curious about the uh, Forrestal. And uh, in the height of my curiosity, I there was a good used bookstore that I frequented not far from where I lived in Centerville, Virginia. They've since moved out for a lower rent in Manassas. But I ran across a biography of uh, Walter Winchell. Um, And uh, I bought it. And and, uh, I remember telling the, the sales clerk, you know, this book could be dangerous in my hands. And sure enough, it was. Because in reading that book, I learned... How much the Zionists hated James Forrestal <laughs> because of his position against uh, recognizing the state of Israel, and, and, and in fact that he was the, the leading opponent within the U.S. government of the creation of the state of Israel. And it had become sort of a lightning rod of um, of uh, the, the Zionists too. I mean, they really—you could tell—they they hated his guts. And, and here we know that they have a, a record of assassinations and, and terrorism. So, I mean, it just put two and two together. So I began to look into it. The first place I, I went was, uh, was through of definitive biography by Townsend Hoops and Douglas Brinkley. Brinkley's now kind of a celebrity historian. He was the young assistant in that book uh, uh, the, the uh, Air Force um, executive in, the, in uh-huh. the Department
1: of the Air Force. And and I think Thompson Brinkley, Hoops. sorry to interrupt, but I think yeah. Brinkley is, uh, he's done a biography of Hunter S. Thompson, kind of accessible history, historian. And Hoops himself was a Yale guy. He was a Skull and Bones member, right? Do you know that?
0: No, no. Hoops, Hoops, Hoops. Yeah, Hoops is a Yale guy. Yeah,
1: Skull and Bones, Skull and Bones as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, but but uh, Brinkley was sort of a protege of uh, what's his name, popular historian. Uh, oh shoot, he died a few years. Anyway, he was he was he was just, he was just making his bones at that point. Uh, but anyway, it's it's a quite good biography, excellent, and, and, and uh, so I just. Uh, Get to the point. their their chapter on his on his suicide, and it's the holes in the story are obvious. as all get out, just from reading it. You know, you can see they don't they don't have any direct evidence. None of you know, no no uh, no quotes from anybody who was on the 16th floor of the Bethesda Naval Hospital that night. Not a single person weighs in. And uh, hold on. (laughs) So I I find from reading references, other books, the key other book they reference in one point in a footnote is the Cornell Simpson book, uh, the Death of James Forrestal, which is the only critical book that had been written. Only later did I find out that uh, the publishing company was uh, is, is the the official publisher of the John Birch Society, Western Islands Press, <clears throat> and um, there, there's a lot in in that book and, and they, they, and, and that would lead you to believe that it was clearly a murder, an assassination, but they point the finger at the communists and not the Zionists. But I've learned a lot from that. But the key thing is that that the Hoops the and Brinkley book did not even mention that there was an official investigation that had been kept secret. They
1: didn't tell you that it existed. <laughs> right. And what was the name um, of that investigation?
0: Well, it, it, I've called it the Wilcox Report after Admiral Morton Wilcox, who was the head of the National Naval Medical Center, which is, which has responsibility for Bethesda Naval Hospital, Admiral Morton C. Willcuts. It's it's easy, it's easy to just to remember it as the call it, like the the Warren Commission report. I call it the Wilkutz report. Gotcha. Uh, and and they took testimony. It was in the newspapers that there was going to be this hearing and they were going to take testimony. Because it's not really a proper investigation. The, the the people who took the testimony were all medical doctors with, the, with one exception, I think. But they were they were all medical doctors at the, at the hospital. What the hell? I mean, they're not qualified, and it shows. You know, they don't ask the right questions, and, and you never learn. I mean, there was. You can tell there from reading the testimony. There actually was. Uh, 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 a, a police investigation—that uh, would be the Navy police. They, they, they took fingerprints, and they did. They, you can tell there wasn't, but that—that's nowhere on the record anywhere. There, there was a, there was a police investigation, but that was, that's still secret. <laughs> you gotcha. The only thing that is now public since I got it my third try with the freedom of information act request was was that that 3-day uh, hearing um, and but then it, after they did the hearing took all the testimony it was never it, it, it was never released only almost 6 months later uh, a summary of the findings was uh, found it buried away in, in the the New York Times, or, I mean, it's almost six months later, the summary of the findings, and uh, lo and behold, the summary of the findings w- w- it did not say that he committed suicide. It didn't conclude so officially, when you talk about what's the official story, well, officially there is no conclusion that he com- committed suicide. The press just tells you that. Wow. They 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 officially concluded that he died from the fall from the 16th floor window. They don't say what caused the fall, <laughs> right. uh, which is they, they just say that nobody employed by the navy was responsible for it. In other words, they they gave themselves a clean bill of health.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> I they, mean. Right. You, the absolved all individuals of blame. I think is what uh, was in the thing, and uh, they couldn't explain why a sash sash was around his neck, too. Right?
0: They did not. They made no mention. They made no mention in that their short conclusion of the uh, sash around his neck. The, The newspapers all called it his his bathroom sash. We don't know that. You know, we don't know what kind of rope it really was. And uh, the, I got, a, 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 as part of the FOIA request, I got a, a, a lot of the official photographs. and We got the photographs of the room and the room across the hall with the open window out of, out of when she went. But none of the photographs of the body. Well, that body would have, that. those photographs would have shown you the sash around his neck. The newspapers tell you that he was using that to tie to the radiator beneath the window to hang himself out of the window. <laughs> and, and Hoops and Brinkley say, the sash gave way. What the hell does that mean, it gave way? The official testimony that it was not broken so that tells you the the, the the knot came untied. What is the likelihood of that? What is the likelihood that that he would not realize that jumping out of a sixteenth floor window would be quite sufficient if you want to kill yourself. You don't really need to hang yourself out of the window. The whole thing is so preposterous. <laughs> you know. Right. Just on its face it's preposterous. But but the official report conclusion made no mention of the, the they just ignored it as, as if it didn't exist and the newspapers just complete that preposterous story that he was using and then using it to hang himself out of the window. Several secondhand accounts say that it broke. Others say that it came untied. All oh, ridiculous. What? One of the things, if if you actually got to see the see the photographs, undoubtedly you'd see that, that it was probably it was used to throttle him more than likely, and being used to throttle him, it would probably have about equal links left over. There wouldn't have been it would there would not have been nearly enough left over for him to have also tied it around the radiator beneath the window
1: and maneuver
0: himself outside out of the window, you know, that mm-hmm. that's what it would have shown. And that's that's probably the main reason why I was not allowed to see. Now, first they told me that it was out of sensitivity to the feelings of the family that they're keeping those those back. Well, but they said I could I could send a letter of protest and, and they would consider it. Well, I did. And what I told him was that he had no really surviving relatives who knew him. Both of his sons were dead by that time. He had one surviving grandchild who who didn't even know her father. Her father, who was an alcoholic like his mother, had had died when when, I think, before this granddaughter was born she didn't know her father she didn't even she didn't obviously didn't know her grandfather so he's like an ancestor to her <laughs> you know so the, you don't have to protect the, the, her feelings her sensitivity so then they came back and said well they were they were in error with their explanation the first time the true reason they can't send it to me is that those photographs <clears throat> would you believe I've been lost. <laughs> and that's, that's all mentioned in the book, it's I not, believe.
1: Yeah, not surprising.
0: <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is just so preposterous. So, you know, at this point, you, can't, you, you, you really don't, you, you don't have to believe, you, it's, it's hard to believe anything. And but the other thing is, it, hap- I, right, know, it happened had-
1: in, the, it was uh, May 22nd, 1949, on the sixteenth floor of a Bethesda Naval Hospital. So it's in a kind of Nice part of Northwest Washington, D.C. Right and, off
0: Wisconsin Avenue.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, it was in the middle of the night. It kind of brings to mind Epstein, like what's going on in the middle of the night at this hospital. And, <laughs> uh, you know, who's, yeah, he was there? Yeah, well,
0: this Epstein thing is something else. Yeah, it it, it, and, yeah, it, it does bring to mind. That,
1: Some similarities. Know, Why it, the middle it, of the yeah, night? They're
0: asking to believe a lot of really unbelievable things. Yeah. I agree.
1: And I mean you point that out I think effectively in your book about all of these other problems that uh this whole poem like there was a narrative somebody seemed to want to put together to make it look like uh you know he was a goner and then they they keyed up this whole element about him being hyper paranoid and uh and even his brother Henry I said I think you said said he didn't believe it was a suicide so there were people there from the beginning who didn't believe there was Uh, Yeah, the
0: big similarities of the the Foster case and the Kennedy assassination. The news media are not the eyes and ears of the public whatsoever. They bend over backwards to sell the suicide story. I mean, they they go past the government. The government officially has not called it suicide, (laughs) you know? Although they did initially, a local coroner, the Montgomery County coroner, called it suicide. But that's not the job of the coroner. I mean, this is a police case. He's gone out of the window. This is what police, or it's their job to determine, you know, what caused him to go out of the window. Was it an accident? Was he thrown out of the window, or did he go voluntarily to kill himself. This is what police do. How's a coroner gonna know what caused him? I mean at that point you don't even know if he's if he's uh full of shot up with drugs and out of his mind. <laughs> you know that right. you don't know anything. The coroner doesn't know anything. So I mean how, how, how credulous do the news people have to be to take the word of a local coroner? It makes no sense. You know? And then they, they really play up this, this uh, morbid poem that he was supposedly transcribing from Sophocles, a course, from Ajax, in which Ajax supposedly contemplates suicide. And, and they say that you know they have well they they have two stories depending upon what edition you read. The the first story is um, that that the book was open to that page that he was reading, and then we have an actual transcription that comes into the picture. You know, and and when I did the part one of uh, Who Killed James Forrestal, I had not at that point actually looked at the handwriting to compare it to to Forrestal's handwriting. I mean, surely, it, you know, you'd think that they would have gone to the trouble to to, uh, to, 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 to fake his handwriting. Well, as it turned out, they didn't. <laughs> Any untrained eye can look at, we finally got the copies of his hand. I didn't, I didn't. Really, I could have just looked at the his signature, which is in, uh, under his portrait in the um, the published uh, diaries, the the diaries of James Forrestal. You can look at his signature there. He writes, although he was right-handed, he writes like a left-hander. Um, very uh, his his. his, uh, his his cursive writing leans to the left rather than naturally to the right, like most right-handers. I mean, that's the most obvious difference. I mean, it, it, so what was presented? I, I expected after I pointed this out that people would say, "Well, what we sent you was not uh, the actual transcription," but they never said that. Interesting. <laughs> so it's still, it's supposedly the actual transcription. Really, that's not his. He didn't do it. So, what else do you need at that point? <laughs> you know? Right. But right. Uh, again, the news, the news media is all—they're sticking with it. Right. You that's know, our that's story. That's,
1: we'll that's, stick with it. Yeah. That
0: was his handwriting.
1: But it, I mean, there's suspicions. I mean, right from the beginning, he was not liked by the Zionists and the communists. He was—he was a known anti-communist, but also
0: absolutely known anti-communist yeah. and known yes and. In fact, that, that's why, and he was at cross-purposes with, uh, with a lot of people within the Roosevelt administration, uh, and, and uh, we can he, he was all against the unconditional surrender demands, which the, dragged out the war all to the benefit of the Soviet Union. Certainly in the Pacific theater, it, it benefited the Soviet Union. I mean, they had a non-aggression pact with Japan throughout World War II, you know, and they only dropped it after, after we dropped the second bomb on the second A bomb, and, and at that point they declared war on Japan. There's no reason for them to to reap any of the spoils of victory in in the Pacific campaign, and um, you know, forestall was 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 trying through the naval intelligence people they knew that the, the Japanese were trying to surrender for, for a couple of years almost <laughs> you know they knew they were beaten but we kept, but we led them to believe that that, that we were going to hang the emperor and get rid of the emperor whole system and impose who knows what on them they would have fought with forks and pitchfork I mean pitchforks and shovels to the last Japanese, as long as we held out that uh, unconditional surrender demand and and uh, it was it was he who persuaded Truman to drop it that unconditional sur- surrender demand I, I explained the details in the book uh, right. but uh, we we have him to credit the, the clever formula that he worked out you know they they said that you know they were they they agreed to everything except they're going to keep the emperor, and 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 Forrestall came back to Truman and say, well, why don't we say, well, okay, we'll we'll accept that, under condition that the emperor is subject to the orders of the U.S. military commander, and and, and we'll tell the American people it's unconditional surrender, on and, and that's and that's what that's what worked. So, I, so, know, that ended so we, we would have gone on. They would have gone on fighting, uh, and
1: a lot more people would have been killed. But for that right, the so arrangement that, yeah, that so Forrestal
0: suggested to Truman,
1: he was a talented uh, in, person in that administration. But he also, the reality is, is that there were communists around um, the U.S. <laughs> at the time. He was complaining about the communists, so it wasn't like he was seeing. Uh, flying pigs or something. Oh, yeah, like
0: they're that. talking about paranoid. Yeah, well, all this paranoia they accuse him of <laughs> was genuine. Not not just, I mean, he was being, his phones were being tapped. He was being, yeah, he, he was definitely, um, both the communists and the, the Zionists <laughs> were, were his arch opponents. And, yeah, the, the, the Roosevelt and then the Truman administration was laced with communists at a very high level. <laughs>
1: right, so, yeah, so. it Yeah, it was
0: genuine.
1: Right, and I mean, he is, his whole thing wasn't, his antagonism with the Zionists was not based on ethnic animosity, at least that's what they seem to have made it up, but he thought that there was going to be tension between the new state of Israel and the Arab powers, and that's really what, and I think you go through your book effectively make that point that. It's that yeah,
0: real realpolitik, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he, he didn't want to alienate, I mean, the, uh, the, the these countries that had all this oil, <laughs> and, and uh, he thought that uh, I, the, he probably thought that the the Zionists were going to be militarily weaker than they were, and we were going to have to use American troops to defend them. So it was, a, it was very. This is sort of a cold, realistic approach to matters. But, but he's, he also saw that in the long term it was just not in American interest. And he was absolutely right, as it's turned out. It's been nothing but a headache from, for us for, to the present day.
1: You and know, and he, there were... he was the
0: most foresighted person in the
1: administration. So he might have perceived that, uh, what was coming. But there were other assassinations around the time that he died. There was the assassination of Fulk Bernadotte in Jerusalem in 1948. There was Jan right. Masaryk who fell out of a window too. And you also brought up the Olson death uh, involving the use of drugs uh, that happened yeah, that later.
0: Comes a little bit later. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a CIA job on one of their own.
1: Right. So those these suspicious things are happening and uh it's uh, his death happened in oh it was also lord Moyne died in march 1949 there was the bombing the blowing up of the king david hotel Hotel. right so there's all kinds of things and you brought up an interesting point that you called this person um the forestall of the uk his name was james bevan can you or ernest bevan can you talk about him a little bit
0: ernest bevan was the yeah, and he was, he was, a, he comes from the labor movement in, in, uh, and labor generally was very pro Zionist, but, but, uh, he, he really was just a straight shooter. And, uh, he wanted to stick to the letter of the law of the Balfour Declaration that nothing would be done to prejudice the interests of the non Jews in Palestine. <laughs> well, if you take that seriously, you know, you're not going to partition Palestine on, and and uh, give a, a disproportionate share of Palestine to these European interlopers, which they really are. I mean, when the, the time of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, like less than 10 percent of the population of Palestine was Jewish. You know, and, and they right. and uh, so I mean uh, Bevin Bevin became. You know, all this time that the, the British had the, the mandate of control of Palestine, so before the U.S. became the principal arbiters after the the British threw up their hands, before that time, all the the focus of the the the, um, the Zionist attention was on the British government, on you know they. they Jewish terrorists. They didn't just kill high-level people. They they also killed the policemen and soldiers and other people trying to keep order in Palestine to to terrorize the British out of there. On uh, they sent letter bombs to um, Ernest Bevin and was uh, was foreign secretary and and to several other high-level officials and, and they were intercepted and they didn't reach their target but and when one guy even one zionist even tried to stage an air raid against the france. You know, that, that's in the book from france yeah against bevin you know and and it was it was because we knew about that never got publicized in this country that the letter bombed in 1947 that was sent to the Truman White House was intercepted.
1: <laughs> right, so <laughs> they they're tried very, to kill Truman. Right, so hyper motivated, very motivated, and also in, uh, not just using assassination, but also blackmail. So, you could oh, kinda... well,
0: that's another thing. You know, blackmail has been a, a big part of it, and and uh, actually, the uh, I, I point. out one of the sources that, that I use the um, what's what's. Uh, uh, the co-authors, I can't think. Of, but they 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 boast about the uh, uh, Jewish blackmail of people like uh, Nelson Rockefeller, to get because Nelson Rockefeller and the Rockefeller family had a lot of influence in Latin America. About the the Rockefellers had had uh, done a lot of business dealings with the Nazis in, in the 1930s, and they used that this guy writing the pro Zionist writes proudly about how they blackmail Nelson Rockefeller to use his influence with Latin American governments to vote for partition of Palestine. I like this is just a fine thing, and they tried and then that they tried to to blackmail Forrestal because of the Dylan Reed company that he had worked for had done business with the Nazis, but it didn't work with Forrestal. And I surmise, probably one of the reasons, Dylan Reed was a Jewish-owned company.
1: <laughs> right, like his boss was Jewish,
0: right? Uh, Clarence Dillon, his, uh, his, his birth name is Lepowski, is a Jew from San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> right. and, uh and, and, I mean, so the, the blackmail didn't work uh, with, with Forrestal. So, if the blackmail didn't work, let's try now, people might argue, well, he was out of the government by the time they killed him. But as, as I point out in the book, uh, his first love was journalism, and 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 that's where the power is in the country. You know that I I don't know if you you've read my uh, America's Driver's affair, the case of the death of Vincent Foster. No, I haven't. But ever. but but I began with a quote from Abraham Lincoln that that I've dredged up and made popular. It, the, I'll gladly take credit for that. Um, The the quote is from his first Lincoln-Douglas debate when he he said, in this and like societies, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, anything is possible. Without public sentiment, nothing is possible. Therefore, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than people who make laws and issue judgments. In other words, the press is stronger than the than the than the government, <laughs> you know, and that's what we're seeing. Right. It's a, it's a very. I was I was watching um, C-SPAN one night, and I saw a uh, reenactment of the first Lincoln Douglas debate, and I heard the Lincoln character say that this uh, this bingo. So I found a, a book of quotes. Uh, 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 from from Lincoln, and, and I found that quote, and then I put it at the, the start. I mean that, that's that's a that's, that's really this molding of public sentiment is is everything, in uh, in a society that purports to be a democracy.
1: And I think that's but a good. And
0: kind of get off on that.
1: No, it's an interesting point because I think that that's how you're also very critical of these other historians who've approached the forestall death. About what they've, <laughs> right, what they've left out and their own uh, agendas, etc. All
0: of them. All of them. I mean, if you try to ask yourself, who is an honorable journalist in this country that you can trust implicitly? Um, I can't think of one.
1: Yeah, it's tough. That's well, a real hard question. Who
0: is an honorable historian that you can trust implicitly? That's another good question. I, I, I can't think of one. Yeah,
1: I really tough. can't think of
0: one. The best history of things like the Kennedy assassination are, are, are being written written by people like me who were not professional historians. That's like Phil Nelson, who was a retired uh, insurance man. He's written these uh, his, his books about the... LBJ's uh, involvement in the Kennedy assassination. I have definitive books on that subject. Uh, and, and, oh, I don't know if you've... I just finished a powerhouse book, The Myth of German Villainy the Myth of German. by, by uh, Ben um, Bradbury. I've never heard of the guy. and Unfortunately, the time I've heard of the guy, He's, he's dead now. He's a little older than me. But he was a retired Navy officer, not a historian. Great. I mean, he he uh, he, he references a lot of late, great historians, uh, people like Harry Elmer Barnes and Charles Beard. But uh, we don't have, have those people. John Flynn, who was a journalist who, who we don't hear about anymore, Oh, but he has a, a lot of good sources, but we just don't have any historians like that anymore.
1: Yeah, it's a shame. So, the history
0: profession and the journalistic profession are they're part of what I call the NOMA. You, you, you you've no. read the book? What NOMA stands for? I don't know. The National Opinion Molding Apparatus.
1: <laughs> Makes perfect sense. I mean, isn't that what corporate media is? That's all it is, is shaping, uh, shaping people's perceptions, not really trying to relate facts, as, as far yeah. as I can tell. The national, I can...
0: And that's the what is the national opinion-molding apparatus. Yeah. Well, it's the game. Right. <laughs> right. Government, academia, media, and entertainment. Entertainment, right.
1: So if you can control that, if you can control those people, if you can finance these histories, you get your own uh, view of reality. And then people will quote that false history as well, is what's really dangerous. And you can see that in your book, is that people are going back through to look at uh, very skewed histories and and referencing that in the future. So you can see, like, what what did Napoleon say? History is bunk. I think that that applies in many uh, many historical events. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Dave, we are at 40 minutes. Um, thank you so much for the interview. Your website, again, is dcdave.com. You have a ton of writing there. What else uh, would you like to leave with the audience before we wrap this up?
0: Well, I've co-written another book. You <laughs> can get, get both of them as a match set. You know, This is The uh, Martyrdom of Thomas Martin.
1: To Martin and Thomas Ford—that's interesting.
0: You don't have to be a, a Catholic to be interested in that. And there's there's another—he was—he was, he was uh, the the big three that were assassinated in in, uh, in 1968. His, his his death occurred on December 10th. Uh, so he supposedly—I
1: uh, I think the public uh, story is that a piece of uh, electric equipment fell into a pool and, and electrocuted him to death, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's what they want us to believe.
1: <laughs> right.
0: And Hugh Turley and I had been uh, wondering about that for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, finally he began to do the research on it. And, uh, I mean, just you can't believe the things that come out about that.
1: Well, it's, too, it's <laughs> odd, too, because you have a very meticulous historian who re- re- writes, what, 20 books or something like that, a very copious amount of literature with, uh, you know, he's a fir- first-rate mind and then absent-mindedly drops a toaster or whatever it was into the bathtub and he dies. Oh, uh, well, so,
0: the, they, they, they say, again, officially, officially, he died of a heart failure.
1: Oh, okay. That's, okay.
0: that's what the Thai, Thai police say, that the the, the if, if, although the, the police report is unsigned and undated and not and the translation is not stamped as an official translation by the U.S. Embassy, like all the other documents we got, so who knows? But anyway, they concluded that he died of heart failure and was already dead by the time he came in contact with that fan, which was found lying diagonally across his supine body with his arms straight down by his side. <laughs> and... uh yeah. None of the, officially he had not taken a shower no, none of the witnesses said that he, would, he was wet from a shower or anything uh, one of the witnesses said he looked like he might have been getting ready to take a shower because he was only wearing his shorts uh, and he had taken his habit off uh, and was just wearing his shorts <laughs> but um,
1: Do you? when was uh, that book published? when did you publish that one?
0: The year before, just okay. the, it was it was the success of that book that that caused us to decide to, to do the four book okay, as, okay. as a book. Where well, that came out in, in March of uh, of, of uh, last year. That's twenty eighteen, and oh, you March. wrote that, that with
1: uh, Christopher Ruddy, who is also a Vince Foster researcher. Correct. <laughs> yeah,
0: right, yeah, So,
1: uh, so you, you guys have have been busy. Uh, Overturning some pony. stuff. We've yes.
0: exposed Ruddy pretty well, I think.
1: Oh, you have exposed Ruddy? As what? Huh? I don't know what you mean by that.
0: Read my article, Double Agent Ruddy Reaches for Media Pinnacle.
1: Okay, but did you write the book Merton about Merton with Ruddy?
0: Oh, no. With, with Turley. Turley! You I Turley. missed that.
1: Okay. I made a mistake.
0: Did Ruddy? I mean, you Turley. You Turley. I made a
1: mistake. I mistook Turley. For Ruddy,
0: well, you know they're both Irish names. Okay,
1: I apologize. And and,
0: and and Ruddy claims to be an Irish Catholic because I suppose his father was an Irish policeman, and and, and he had a large family. Sounds like a typical Irishman. Never says anything about his mother, but Ruddy studied for a time at Hebrew University.
1: Interesting, but Turley was Didn't one they? of the Turley was one of the original. Vince oh, Foster. absolutely. He, okay, so he was
0: sorry. a co- he uh, he and, and Patrick Knowlton and John Clark, the lawyer for Knowlton, and Knowlton is the witness, the dissident witness in the Foster case. Okay. The three of them together wrote the the letter to the to the Star,
1: um, right, the to the Star. Right, the addendum to the Star report, right.
0: The addendum, you know, okay. yeah, and okay. then they wrote uh, Failure of the Public Trust, right. which is originally a court submission, uh, but it's turned into a book. So well, the, they're the three co-authors, and they have the fbicoverup.com website. Right. So, yeah, Turley and I are the,
1: you I know, we're, we're
0: collaborators.
1: Gotcha, I misunderstood.
0: You, Turley, well, I, I might have said ready by mistake. No,
1: I'm, I might have heard it. I think it was my mistake, so I apologize for that, but... Uh, <laughs> I would love yeah. to talk with you about that as well. If you have time, maybe next month or sometime, I'd like to pin uh, down an interview about that book. It sounds very interesting. I'd like to know more about Merton as well. But again, this... Yeah, book, well,
0: I'm yeah, uh, either, either, either or Turley or I could do that interview. Okay. Turley knows that case inside and out. Right,
1: well, I can get in touch with him as well. But again... He, it,
0: he made the key discovery, uh, the initial uh the initial uh, designated biographer of uh, merton actually made off with um, two negatives of the photograph of merton's body taken by one of the witnesses when when the witness realized the charade that the Thai... he was going to give this photographs to the Thai police but when he saw the charade they were pulling off he decided that they better not give it to them. Uh, and this is a Filipino monk, priest from the Philippines. Uh, anyway...
1: What, what do you think the motivation was to um, assassinate Merton?
0: Merton was a... If you want to know the motivation, read the introduction okay. to James Douglas's book on the Kennedy assassination. Kennedy. Right. You'll see what a behind-the-scenes influence... Merton was in the anti war movement. He was a big influence on Daniel Berrigan. Awesome. He had a, a mailing list that didn't quit, including Ethel Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy's wife, that, that that he sent that he sent his, his letters to. He had even sent a couple of strong letters to Lyndon Johnson, which that that might have signed his death that certificate right there. Wow.
1: That's amazing. Oh. And that's interesting to bring that up because uh, Forrestal himself was friends with John F. Kennedy and took John F. Kennedy to the Potsdam Conference. So, yeah, you know,
0: James Tracy has done a, a good um, a video that that uh, you might you might check it. Go to heresycentral.com, which is I'm I'm collaborating with John Rovinski. I have my stuff on there. Gotcha. But Tracy has a, a new video he's done on on Merton. I see that. that You'll, you'll find it on HeresyCentral.net, it is.
1: And the Douglas book is JFK, The Unspeakable, right? It's that one?
0: That's, that's, that's correct, Yeah, about It's about probably it. now the, really the best-known uh, book on the Kennedy, mm-hmm. best-known critical book yeah, on that. the Kennedy assassination these days.
1: Well, I'd like to wrap it up now, Dave. We are at 50 minutes. Again, the title of the book is The Assassination of James Forrestal, available now on Amazon. And your website, again, is dcdave.com. Thank you so much for the interview.
0: Well, it was my pleasure. I appreciate the interview, and I'm glad I held up for the whole thing. Awesome.
1: Well, you did great. So I'm done recording.